Hi everyone and welcome to the Pamba Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. I hope you're all um, taking care of yourselves and you're all well. Um, obviously we're in the midst of a pandemic right now and many of us are in lockdown so I just want to acknowledge that at the start and just hoping that you're all okay and uh, taking care and, and safe um, because that's what's, that's really important right now and um, this is the time we're living in so um, and it would be quite ironic if this went out after lockdown finished but there you go um, we'll see I guess but if but if if you're in the midst of it take care of yourselves um, hope you're okay um, today I have a new guest on the show um, her name is Delana May uh, so welcome to the show Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's really exciting. A mutual friend of mine, uh, of ours, um, Sierra White, introduced us. And uh, and I've got a powerful story and just some really incredible work. And I'm excited to to talk about it and to share it with you. So just tell us a bit of your story, Delena. Sure. Um, man, I feel like that question can go in so many directions. But um, <laughs> I guess to start with, I was born in the South, and my parents were pretty conservative Christians. My dad was pastor, um, and by the time I was about 11, we ended up moving overseas to Latin America. Um, There were missionaries there, so I grew up in that environment in Honduras and Costa Rica until college. Um, Yeah, that was an, an interesting journey being in that part of the world, and um Obviously, it's pretty bad now with a lot of gang violence and things like that. But that was also true when I was there. Um, just saw a lot of a lot of violence, a lot of violence against women and you know my girlfriends and stuff at the time. And moved back to the states for college. Um, got married within a couple of years and jumped into Bible school and trying to do all the stuff a good Christian girl is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Ended up going. Yeah. <laughs> Ended up going overseas as a missionary myself with my husband, and we have four little boys. So we ended up in Peru doing really traditional mission stuff. And then I think it was while we were in Peru, just I guess everything started crumbling around me, and all the things that seemed certain and true just didn't feel so certain and true anymore. And um, a lot of the, I guess, social norms that I had been raised with and conservative Christianity and just didn't fit well. Um, In our family, especially the the gender norms were not working for us. We had these little kids, but I was not the kind of woman I was told I was supposed to be and that godly women are. Um, I don't think I have a submissive bone in my body. (laughs) It wasn't working out so well. Um, And we were really frustrated so my husband, he at one point, it was one of those turning moments, he looks at me and he said, I don't think you were put on this earth to fulfill my needs and to help me with my calling. What's yours? And I had no answer for him, which kind of bugged me a lot because I'd always had all these plans and dreams. And I think somewhere along the, the journey, I just lost all of that and was just trying to be you know, good wife, mom, Christian lady. And so that kind of began a journey into figuring out why I was put on the planet. Um, I ended up going back to school and getting a master's. Um, 
in leadership and children at risk. And then we ended up moving out of missions. Um, we went to Indonesia, but we were working with an organization that was doing a lot of um, different kind of humanitarian work. It was an Indonesian organization. And I think my background of being raised overseas and seeing a lot of the dirty side of missions um, and then being overseas an adult and kind of seeing it again from a different perspective and seeing a lot of the colonialism and just the, the ways I think so often missions um, prioritizes Western leadership and Western ideas and vision and really ignores, I think, a lot of times what local vision and local leaders want. Um, we wanted to work underneath Indonesian leaders. So we were working with this amazing organization and my boss at the time, he said, hey, you're sitting in a really important space as a Westerner with access to resources, as somebody who speaks Indonesian and English. There's all these resources in the community globally and in the West that we don't have here. And he said, your passion is in anti-trafficking. I was working with an aftercare shelter for trafficked teen girls at the time. And he said, you've been helping our staff, but can't you help all these other grassroots organizations? And I said, nope, <laughs> I didn't come here to start an organization. I don't want to do that. And he's like, no, that's what you need to do. As an Indonesian leader, I'm telling you, this is what, what we need. And so I ended up starting an organization called Dark Folly. And Dark Folly's aim is basically to strengthen existing um, and new Indonesian grassroots organizations doing anti-trafficking work around the country. So just bringing in resources that they don't have, networking people together, doing a lot of the, the grunt work and dirty work so that they're free to work on their programs and projects. And yeah, it's been an amazing journey. It feels like about a million years ago that we had that conversation in Peru about what I was going to do. Um, but it's been a pretty incredible ride. I'm really thankful. So that's wow. kind of my story in a nutshell. That is very much in a nutshell. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I'm really intrigued because obviously you've been in, you're in the missions field and I mean, I was, I was as well. I mean, I was, I was with you for the mission about 20 years ago, you know, okay. um, so I've done, I've done a bit of missions work and yeah, I mean, there's a whole kind of thing of which I've been encountering in my deconstruction around missionary work and colonialism and, like, oh, maybe we shouldn't be just doing this the way we've been doing this. Like, um, how did you kind of encounter that? What, how did that kind of demonstrate itself to you? And what did you do about it when you saw it? You know, I think for me, it just smelled funny from the time I was really young. And I remember when I was overseas as a kid, and, you know, there were a lot of different missionaries around us, and not everybody was this way, certainly. I think there were some people that were doing amazing things and doing it really well and working really in real partnerships with the local community. But I think a lot of times what I saw was a missionary, and usually a man, you know, the men were always in charge, and he would develop a quote-unquote local partner, and he would be calling him his local partner, but I would just, I remember thinking to myself, even as a teenager, he's not really your partner, you just tell him what to do, you know, and, and the kind of the, the way the narrative was, was a Westerner would have a vision, have a desire, they would put like a God stamp on it by saying it was God's calling on them or something like that, 
And then they would go overseas and start doing this thing that they had already decided they were going to do before they even got there. And then they would find somebody local that would buy into it. And then they would start developing that person as a protege. But they would never hand over leadership. They would never hand over power until they were ready to leave. And so once they were finally ready to go home, then they might transfer leadership over. But really, it was just the same, usually white guy in charge the whole time in his whole ministry. And and I remember being really young and just thinking, that's not what partnership looks like. If that's really your partner, then you should be able to follow him as quickly as he follows you. But why, why are the local leaders never the ones actually calling the shots? Why are they never the ones in charge? Why are they never the ones casting the vision itself? Um, and it just bothered me. And... You know, I went to school, did an undergraduate degree in intercultural studies before we moved to Peru. Um, And where we were working in Peru, it was super tribal, really remote, um, airstrip type of situation. Uh, No electricity, no running water. Um, So very, very remote village. And we ended up not staying very long. We were only there for five years. Because about the time we hit year four, year five, and we you know, had some competency in the tribal language, we had been invited to to this village to help this tiny little local church that had a New Testament translated recently kind of teach through that New Testament. Um, but while we were on a home assignment, we came back and saw that the local leaders in this this native church had all on their own gone and gotten like a seminary class and like they were running the show like they were doing great they really had no need of us and so in a lot of ways we we left feeling like well we didn't really do much I did some medical stuff and you know handed out vitamins and Tylenol but I think it was a huge learning experience for us going what is our place as foreigners, what is our place as non-locals, um, whether it's in a church planting context or not? And I think we left going, our places behind the scenes, our places pouring gas into their gas tanks, our place is to say, what is your vision? And is there something that I have that would be helpful? And if so, mm-hmm. jump in. And if not, get out of the way. Um, so that's kind of what we sat with as we kind of decided, well, where are we going to go next? What are we going to do? Do we stay in the States? Do we go somewhere else? Um, but I think for me, that's the DNA that helped me develop the organization that I'm um, serving in now, Dark Bali. It's all about asking local leaders, what do you need? What do you need to be successful? What do you need to achieve your vision? What would be helpful? And is there some way that we could help provide that? Yeah, and that's that's the kind of counterculture thing that's the the alternative it's like almost um subversive kind of this is your this is your place this is your Mm -hmm. vision this is your country this is your tribe um or i'm I'm just gonna give you what you don't have if you don't have it and allow you to do what you do kind of thing rather than i'm going to come in and do it all for you and tell you what to do like, I'm going to let you do it and just help out in any way you need you need me to help out kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's like lever- leveraging privilege, right? Like, yeah. I acknowledge the fact that I have wealth, I have access to resources, I have education. You know, I have things that certain communities don't have. 
Um, and my place is not to force that on them and say, here, take, you know, take these things that I have, but it's to say, hey, I do have these privileges. If it's helpful as an ally, here's what I have. Do you want any of this? Mm, and really yeah. submit to their leadership. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's funny because I think it ties back into that submission thing where, you know, I was raised fighting this, like, I'm not a submissive person. I'm not a submissive person. And I think finding appropriate submission has been part of my journey where submission does not look like sexist. I'm a girl, so I have to back down to any man. But true submission looks like recognizing my privilege and being submissive within that. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it makes sense. Yeah, um, because it's so important that we own and recognize our own privileges. Uh, because, and that's part of one thing I've learned on deconst- in deconstruction is that actually that is part of it. You you can't really have a complete deconstruction unless dealing with your your own privilege and your own um, prejudices and inbuilt prejudices uh, and yeah, that includes empire, race um, that kind of thing unless you confront all of that you, you, you haven't done all the work um, and that's one of the reasons I have so many voices like you know Sierra and other people on the show because I I want to hear those. I, want, I mean, that's part of my journey. I want to, I want to educate myself and learn, like you say, how to be submissive from a, from that privilege and acknowledge that I have that privilege um, and start listening because I think that's what we need to do. Yeah, it's. I think it's been so beautiful, um, even to reap those benefits personally in these really good, genuine relationships um, in Indonesia. We had a pretty rough exit out. Um, we were attached to a missions agency. We didn't like, really identify as missionaries, but technically we're still under a missions agency. And it got really sticky as we kind of were extricating ourselves from this missions culture and realized that, that the fit was pretty rough. I did some advocacy kind of speaking up and whistleblowing about some sexism in, in the region and the organization, and that didn't go over very well. But as it got really messy and, you know, we ended up exiting out of, of Indonesia for a bit, I, I just remember realizing that the people that we were calling were our Indonesian partners because they were our partners and they were our friends. And they were the people that we turned to for emotional support. And I I remember in the middle of, you know, kind of the trauma that was this big breakdown in, in our um, our community there, our Western missions community, realizing that even though that part was really bad, those relationships in Indonesia that I could say these really are partners. These are people that I'm looking to for advice, for comfort, for help. This is me going to them and um, knowing that they hold not just emotional support, but even some solutions for these problems was huge because I don't think I've often seen that in Western missions. You know, as the missionary, you're supposed to have the answers and you're supposed to be the one that's strong and you're supposed to be the one that has the words of wisdom and words of advice and the plan and da, 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 da. and we at the end had nothing. We had no plan and no idea what to do. Even with Dark Bali, it was such a young organization. You know, I was saying, should we close the doors? Like, should we just be done and say, well, that was fun, but maybe 
continue. And it was our Indonesian friends and partners and the organizations that were part of the Dark Valley Coalition that said, no, this is what we want we need. Let's find a new way to do it outside of the traditional missionary enterprise because this is important to us and you're important to us. Mm. And so um, it ended up being a really cool thing. I came back and I'm working from the U.S. and traveling back and forth. But it's been really cool because... Even that's been an area of growth where our local staff is just taking over like they're doing it on their own. And I mean, I'm a little sad because I miss it and it was so much fun to be a part of the day-to-day stuff, but coming back in the States and taking on a supportive role where, you know, I'm doing a lot of the office work and kind of the awareness and advocacy and fundraising and that aspect of the organization and just seeing our 100% Indonesian partners, you know, it's all Indonesians doing it on the ground and, and doing their program work has been really, really cool. And I think just solidifies my belief of where my place is. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's discomforting, but it's necessary because, you know, you can think of yourself as a kind of liberal, progressive kind of person, inclusive person, um, and not realise that you actually have privilege and and inbuilt biases, you know. That was part of my story with realising that, like, and say, oh my gosh, why is this, you know, why is this discomforting me? It's like, oh, because I've got privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like... So you peel back one layer and there's another one. There's yeah, I know. One. And it's just like, oh, right, okay. I've got, a layer, I've got to shut up and listen there. You know, um... Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same with all parts of deconstruction in many ways, because, especially when you're a man, because first you've got to sharpen and listen to women, and then you've got to sharpen and listen to everybody else, basically, because you've been like at the top of the tree and not and mm-hmm. uh, not known it not known your privilege so you just got to shut up and listen to every, literally everybody else and hear their stories and realise um, how much privilege you had um, or have still I mean you know uh, it's uh, it's quite a humbling experience but it's necessary yeah I totally agree um, so I mean how has this journey kind of been reflected in your own your own spiritual journey, your own kind of faith journey. Mm. Um, I know you talked about this a little bit on your show before, but I think it's kind of come in stages. Um, I think the first was reckoning with um, certainty and getting comfortable with saying, I don't know, Um, and kind of moving into that uncertain space where, you know, the faith of my youth had an answer for every question. And, mm. you know, as I was encountering things like human trafficking and I was encountering things like poverty and I was encountering things like abuse within missions and church, um, I was encountering things like um, the faithful dying and, you know, God not, quote, unquote, protecting them. I had it start asking a lot of questions about things that had been true and obvious and certain before. And I feel like slowly things started kind of unraveling. And I think at this point, I think, I think I used to think I would replace some, you know, some certain answers for new certain answers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's how I hope it would go, but that's not how it's gone. It's gone more in the direction of just being able to say, I don't know. I don't know why, things exist the way that they are. You know, I've done work in the red light districts in in Bali and 
you know, sat next to teenage sex trafficking victims in brothels and watched them go to, you know, a different room to get abused. Like, I've watched it happen in front of me. I've had relationships with people that I'm pretty sure are dead now um, because of the abuse and violence. And I don't have answers for why these things, why these things happen and why it's not allow it. But at the end of the day, I think my faith can be boiled down to God's real and, and it's about love. And we're all invited to that. And that's really all I have. Uh, I don't have much else besides that. And I'm, I'm learning to get comfortable with that and that enough. Um, and then I think uh, the second part about it has been more about identity. Um, mm. You know, and going from feeling like there was this very specific script I was supposed to follow um, the type of person I was supposed to be I really didn't and still don't fit in that mold very well to actually coming to the place where well I'm not that under this but I actually really like this and I think once I got to the place where I could say I actually really like this I like who I am I'm not perfect and you know I could give you my list of character flaws but but I think who I am is purposeful and intentional by God because whatever it has he has for me to do requires me to be this and not that. Um, and so I'm, I'm learning to work on those things that aren't so great and really lean in and develop the things that are and to not be apologetic about being who I am and the way that I am. Um, you know, I know that I have an advocate's heart and, you know, I'm a loud mouth that called bossy a lot as a kid. Um, but I, I'm reframing a lot of that stuff and going, it's not that I'm bossy, it's that I have leadership skills. Um, and as a female, that can often get um, kind of turned into a negative and being called bossy. And, you know, it's not that I'm a loud mouth or something like that. It's that I have a deep passion for justice and I'm willing to call it out and I'm willing to make people uncomfortable um, rather than to be silent about it. Um, and seeing those things as part of my identity and seeing my identity as wrapped up in whatever calling I have. Um, so, yeah, I think those two things have been probably big in my faith journey, you know, living with uncertainty and the identity issues. And I, I know as I've learned to like who I am and love who I am, I think I've been able to experience God's pleasure in who I am as well. I don't think it, it didn't exist before. I think I was just unable to listen. I was unable to hear or experience God's pleasure of me as a person because I had such a hard time experiencing it for myself. So, yeah, I think those two are probably maybe the biggest. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's really interesting because, you know, our journeys impact our you know, our perspective on on the divine and Jesus and, and we all experience that in different ways as well because we're different kinds of people mm-hmm. you know some people will really just go straight all the way down and uh, you know I mean de- deconstruction is really interesting because some people lose their faith completely mm-hmm. and become atheists some people become agnostic some people go back to their faith some people find a different kind of spirituality it's all different depending on the person there's no one size fits all for uh, the spiritual path 
Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I've definitely seen those play out in different people. You know, I think for me, I struggled with, you know, questions about God's existence, and I was probably an atheist for about five minutes at some point, you know, just like these hard doubts. But I think at the end of the day, and it was ironic because it was in the context of working around a lot of trauma, um, and somehow the evil made sense to me that that evil could exist without God. But then I would see the goodness of people and, you know, our Indonesian partners and so many of them are, I mean, there are all these amazing people that do so much with so little as far as resources. And a lot of them don't even have an educational background. Like they're not social workers. They're not counselors. It'd be these women who, you know, had a high school education, but were hired to work in programs working directly with uh, trafficking survivors, often kids that were extremely traumatized. And it is the hardest work. And I would see their persistence and their love, and that doesn't make sense to me without God. Um, Mm. So in some ways, I think it was my Indonesian community that probably saved my faith from totally wrecking in this process because I could see the evil without God. But I couldn't see this goodness and this response and this persistent love without the existence of God. It would have been too hard Hmm. um, without God. Yeah, that's interesting. That's That's kind of where it was for me. But I also know other people, like you say, like you end up in a different place. And and I don't think anybody's really stagnant in their journey anyway. You know, this might be your answer today, but it might not be your answer next year. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. There's no such thing as, you know, I don't think... I think it's healthy to be stagnant in our spiritual journey. I don't think that's a healthy place to be. That's where kind of religious certainty and fundamentalism and all of that kind of comes in. Um, and that can be whatever theology you have. It can be progressive theology. It can be uh, conservative theology. It can be something else. Uh, fundamentalism Fundamentalism is kind of how you believe and how you hold your beliefs. And if you're willing to listen to other people's mm-hmm. stories, if you're willing to... Um, understand and learn from other people even people who disagree with you then you're going to grow um, and you're going to be much more healthy Um, it's strange that sometimes I find myself talking to people who kind of have a more traditional theology in that they're still part of the Christian church Um, not that they're conservatives but, um, but I get on really well with them because because they're holding their beliefs lightly and they're willing to listen to my mm-hmm. story and I'm willing to listen to theirs and so we both grow as a result and that's uh, you know and I can and you can and when you have that perspective you can see the good you can see right. the love you can see you can see the divine in the midst of that even if you disagree with their language or or even some of their beliefs um, because of the way you're holding those beliefs. Yes. It changes everything. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's exactly what I was thinking what you're saying. It's the way, right? It's the way that you hold the, those beliefs, not necessarily the beliefs themselves. And I think, you know, you see a mixed bag in pretty much any kind of denomination or religious sect or whatever. And I think it boils down to fear. If your beliefs are held because you're afraid, you know, you're afraid of something else, afraid to ask questions, afraid um, for whatever reason, then I think there's nothing good that can come out of, you know, religious fervor that's held, held because of fear. And I think for me that the 
scripture of perfect love casts out fear. I feel like that's been a big part of my journey is not being afraid to ask questions. Because before I could even ask the questions I kind of knew I had, I had to be unafraid of the answer. Because I think for me, I watched my earliest childhood memory is watching the gay son of our pastor be excommunicated in our church when I was very young, probably yeah. four or five. That's my earliest childhood memory. And so I think, you know, remembering being in a community where if you didn't stay within this box, you didn't stay within these boundaries, you lose everything and your family loses everything. And so, you know, and then being the daughter of a pastor, I felt like if I didn't stay within my box, that I could destroy my family, I could destroy my father's ministry, I could destroy myself. And so for me, there was just so much fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an, I'm an Enneagram 8, so for me, fear comes really? out. Really? I don't want to guess. Fear comes out. And in fact, just last week, I was talking to my therapist. You know, we're in the middle of this coronavirus thing, and, and we were, I was kind of processing it with her, and she's like, so what's under that anger? I'm like, more anger? <laughs> she's like, yeah, but underneath that anger. And I'm like, uh. And she goes, maybe grief? I'm like, yeah. 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 But those are hard for me to access. It took a lot of years and a lot of therapy to be able to say I'm afraid or I was afraid or I'm grieving this, you know, and mm-hmm. we're, you know, like everybody else trying to figure out, <clears throat> excuse me, what we're doing in the middle of this crisis and seeing these projects and these expectations. I was planning a trip to Indonesia and just kind of seeing those fall apart and going, okay, like I'm mad, but actually I feel grief. I'm sad right now. I'm sad for what's happening around the world. I'm sad for the communities that don't have access to medical care and and government bailouts. I'm sad for what this is costing our Indonesian partners. I'm worried for them and how they're going to navigate through this financially. And, um, And I think, you know, for me, I have to give space to the fear and I have to acknowledge my grief and then I can move forward and then I can do something wise and intelligent and honest. Um, But I think for me, especially as an Enneagram 8, that takes a lot of work to get to that place. I think, you know, my impulse is to just like bulldoze through and just, you know, do something to make myself feel better, but to like pause on the doing let myself feel it, be honest, and then let that cultivate wisdom in my response. Mm. Wow, that's a great answer. <laughs> that's a really great answer. And it's, it's just really interesting how you mentioned grief there because uh, and, and what's happening with the virus and pandemic. Because I've noticed that in myself. I'm, I'm an Enneagram 4. Okay. Um, and, uh, but... You know, I, I lost I lost a parent twenty years ago. People listen to the show will know this. Um, I spent the last five years finally coming to terms with that grief. Mm. Uh, I think before that I had had therapy and counselling and stuff, but I had built a structure in my life around the heart of that that grief. Um, mm-hmm. So I could have just carried on my life as it was, and probably would have everything would have looked fine on the surface. And I could have done that for the rest of my life, but I was still have been carrying this little weight, and eventually it burst out. So, having dealt with all of that and been working through all that, um, which is a long story, which which I will tell in the book one day um, next year probably. Um, 
it's interesting now observing what's happening with people because people are grieving lots of mm-hmm. they're grieving lots of things they're grieving right. the loss of their routine they're grieving the loss of their job they're grieving the loss of a loved one they're grieving the loss of just being able to not being able to go out like they used to not being able to go for a drink not being right. able to go to the pub not being able to go for a meal you know we're grieving all of these things you know and it sounds silly but we are and we're all carrying that grief and the other thing that, that has occurred to me is that actually what's what what's going to happen is this is going to uncover a lot of other deeper grief and trauma yeah. in a lot of people and then people will have to choose whether to engage with that and process that and get healing and freedom or to do what people sometimes do which is just build a new structure build a new routine mm-hmm. build a new um, set of coping mechanisms unhealthy coping mechanisms to avoid right. dealing with the pain because that's what people have done like for years you know that's what people do right. it's easy to do that It's that's where you get religious certainty it's where you get addiction it's where you get all of those things and it, on, on the surface some of those things can look good like you know um, going to church regularly religious certainty can look like a good thing you know having a stable job which means you don't have to confront the fact confront stuff um, don't have to worry about money can be a way of hiding from dealing with stuff um, it was for me <laughs> so it's going to be interesting to see how people respond to it and my hope is that more people will choose to confront what's really going on yeah. Are you familiar with Brene Brown's work? Oh yes, absolutely. Oh yeah, love her. <laughs> yeah, I read through all of her books every single. I want her on the show so um, bad. It's so like. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Well, and I love. She talks about how I think it's in her Braving the Wilderness book. Yeah. She talks about how when we feel anxiety, people usually go in one of two directions. They are overproducers or underproducers, right? So you have people that are overproducers, and that's me, and they get really busy, right? If I get anxiety, give me a project. And so, you know, like, I'm over here stuck in my house with four kids, and I'm like, here's our school schedule. I'm homeschooling four children, running an organization. I'm applying for grants, and I'm exercising every single day. You know, (laughs) like, start doing this, like, crazy overproductive routine. Um, And then there are people that numb out, you know, and and one of my best girlfriends, you know, we kind of compare because she just, like, can barely function, you know? Like, she just doesn't want to do anything. It's hard to even get off the couch. It's hard to be motivated. Like, did you shower today? And and so, but I think we're doing, it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, we're just absolutely. We're trying to get through and we're, it's a coping thing. Whether you're an overproductive coper or an underproductive coper, like, at the end of the day, you have to face your reality. That you're scared and you have anxiety. Yes. that you're worried about the future and yeah. my being an overproductive person should not win me points and I think it's easy for people to look at the overproducers and be like oh y'all have your stuff together we don't, we don't have it together not at all, this is just anxiety it's another, it's another way of coping and I think this is what one of the things that I've said, to, said a lot recently is we need to have grace with each other, we need to because we're all going to be coping with this in our own way I'm I'm one of those people. Uh, yeah, I I struggle. I've been struggling to to write. I mean, I've been struggling to write for a while, but um, I've been struggling to. I've been, I've been wanting to write and just not been able to because it's been too much. Um, mm-hmm. My only creative outlet has been the podcast, and the podcast I I enjoy um, and 
although I have to do preparation and all of those kind of things, it's not the same as sitting down and writing your heart out, is it? So, um, yeah, uh, I'm so, I, I've had days where, I, where, where I've not showered, like weekends, you know, like because I've, I've had the damp, you know, days. Because, and I know a lot of people who've been the same. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, we're human. I think we need to, it's okay to admit you're human, you have fears, you have anxieties, you have imperfections, you're not going to get it right, no matter how healthy you are, like, I have, I have, I know, I have practices which help me be healthy, mentally, physically, emotionally healthy, and sometimes I can do all of them, and I'm still a mess, because I'm human, like, you know, and it's the point in relationships with other people, do we have those kind of relationships where we can call them out and they can call us out? So using an example of the same friend, you know, what I have to do for her to support her in this when we're doing our nighttime check-ins is say, hey, did you shower today? Like, tomorrow do yoga. You know, like, do something that's going to help you cope in a more effective way than an underproducer that you are. And I need her to say, have you just sat and let yourself be sad? Or have you just stayed so busy you haven't even paid attention yet? Mm. Like, have you sat and meditated and just let the feelings exist? And so I think for me it's so important to have a few people in my life who know me well enough to know what my impulses are and how I do avoid confronting those difficult feelings and can challenge me to be less productive. Like, it's okay, Delena. It's okay to like stop working for a second and let yourself yeah. feel what you feel. Because it really is. Frankly, yeah. we're all entitled to that right now. Um, and then I can do the opposite of her and be like, "Hey, you've been sitting with this for many hours, but have you done anything to move forward? You know, have you done yoga or whatever?" So yeah, I think yeah, we can support each other in that way through this. I think that will make such a huge impact. We all have our own work to do, but we also have, I think the joy of being in relationship with people and, and helping them be accountable to do their work as well. Absolutely. And you're right. Um, we've just got to support each other and have grace with each other. Um, you know, I mean, the practices that I use generally are healthy for me and they make a difference to me and they have been. They have been. But I'm still... Ca- but, but I think what those practices do actually is they help you connect with what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And then you have to actually mm-hmm. face it. Like, mm-hmm. because if you're just numbing it, then you're not. You don't even know it's there. Right. If you're numbing it, if you're doing practices which make you healthy, part of being healthy is actually feeling the pain. Mm-hmm. And that's not yeah. easy. It's like I mean, I've used this metaphor before: building or you're kind of building a structure into this well, like almost like a ladder. Uh, that's 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 kind of your pain and your grief and your and you're building a way of going in and out of that without it actually having the power to control you. And that's yeah. what it is. But the problem is when you're down there, it's it can be difficult, especially if it's new and especially if it's yeah. big like it is now. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, I've been saying to people, like, you're not alone. Um, it's okay to be not okay right. right now. And I think, you know, and maybe this is especially for Americans, you know, we want the resolution now. And I... My therapist has been seeing the same woman for a very long time, and while all the things in Bali were falling apart, I remember she told me it was the most helpful thing that I heard through that whole process. She said, you cannot heal until you're out of trauma. You're still in the middle of that. Stop thinking you're going to heal right now. You can't. You have to get out of the trauma before you can heal right now. You can mitigate 
some of the negative impact, but you cannot heal until you're out of it. And I think we have to recognize that we're in the middle of this thing and we don't know how long it's going to last. And to expect that we're just going to like be fixing it while it's still unfolding is kind of ridiculous. Absolutely, yeah. That's great wisdom. You can't, you can't fix trauma when you're still in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Like, what's the worst time to help somebody who deal with their grief? It's when it's the day that that person's died, right? Like, on the day my mother died, there was no way that I was going to be able to deal with my grief because it's right. I'm right in the middle of it. I'm, right. you know, it's not over. You know, and it's only when it's over that you can start to process it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, and it's the same with all trauma. You can, you're right. I mean, that's great wisdom from your therapist. Um, you know, and I think that's that's something that people should remember that we just have to sit this out and just keep keep going day to day, and then when we get to the end of it, we can start to examine ourselves and start to do that work, um, yeah. and you know, see therapists, see spiritual directors, see counsellors, you know, do the work um, because from experience, I know that it is worth it and it is liberating, and you yeah. get to know yourself. You get to know yourself, yep. which is great. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, it's just so freeing when you get to know yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. Get to know yourself and start to like yourself. I think has been kind of the the second of that pair for me. Like, mm. it's good to know yourself, but do you like yourself? Do you like what you've gotten to know? Um, and to be able to say yes to that has been really huge for me. Really, really huge for me because I think I think I spent a long time. Um, feeling, I guess, I don't know if it's even a word, unlikable, you know, because I couldn't fit in the mold and I didn't do anything right, um, or at least the way I was told was the right way. And so I think coming to the place to be able to say, yeah, I know myself and I'm very aware of, of the deficiencies maybe, but but I like myself mm. has been such a gift. Yeah, I'm starting to get to that place as well. Yeah, the stages to this journey and I'm excited to write about it and to talk about it more um, in the next few years because I, I feel like people are going to need it and I feel like I can actually help people with it which is you know, great you know, obviously not for the right reasons because I'd rather I didn't have to do that <laughs> um, but it's something I mean that's something I've, I've wanted yeah that's something that I think is important anyway whether this has happened or not whether the, 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 the pandemic had happened or not I think it's still important for all of us to do this work yeah. So, um, yeah, well, thank you. This has been really great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, uh, I did too. It was super fun. Um, I'll have to do it again, definitely. Um, I love that. Um, fantastic. Yeah. And um, how can people connect with you in your work? Um, a couple of ways. Um, if you're curious about, like, the organization itself and the work that I'm doing, you can go to darkbali.org. Um, and our website's pretty robust. Um, one of our goals is kind of just bringing awareness and information, um, lots of resources and stuff on that. But um, there's a contact page there, so you can connect with me through that. Um, the more personal stuff, I have a personal blog. Um, that's DelanaMay.com. Um, and I just kind of riff on a lot of stuff on faith and theology. And it's kind of journaly, um, just talking about where I'm at and um, you know, kind of what I've been going through and processing things. So, um, either one, there's contacts on both of those. And then 
I have a personal page on Facebook that's open, and then Dark Wally also has a Facebook and Instagram and Twitter account. So really through any of those ways, you can connect with me or with the organization. Fantastic. Great. Well, thank you. Um, and, yeah, I hope um, you and your family are all safe and good and stay well. And, um, thank you. It's been super fun to talk and just, I don't know, I think just share heart and um, a yeah. lot of these things. So uh, it's been fun getting to know you and wish you the best and, and help in the middle of all of this as well. Thank you. And everyone else listening, take care and stay safe and hope you will stay well. Um, And I'll talk to you all again really soon.